Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And joining me today is a designer in his own right, as well as a co-designer on many hit games, including Resist, War Chest, and the incredible Undaunted series. Welcome to the show, David Thompson. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really yeah, appreciate it. That's a lead up, man. You got a lot of weight on your shoulders at this point. <laughs> I don't have to carry it by myself, though. As you said, I'm co-designing almost everything. So you must be feeling good load, right about now. Like, as we're yeah. talking, Undaunted Stalingrad is number three on the BGG hotness. Yeah. Uh, yes, I do feel good. Um, also, though, I'm one of, I'm sure this is a very common thing. It's just the time of nerves. Now, now it's like nobody's going to buy it or... Oh, oh, my friend, my friend, (laughs) people are going to buy that game. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I am coming at Undaunted uh, from maybe a perspective that is not uncommon to the Undaunted series and the fans of it, but uh, uncommon for typical war games in that I've covered war games on this channel. Uh, I've covered historical games on this channel, and oftentimes there are these big, daunting uh, expansive and somewhat impenetrable things. And unless you're immersed in that culture as like a dedicated fan, it can be really hard to kind of find a foothold. Whereas Undaunted is this series that feels robust and accurate and authentic, but at the same time is made for, you know, stupid little midweight Euro gamers like me that are terrified of some of the deeper stuff. I mean, I like that stuff. But it it is a a unique and niche culture. And I think that's one of the major accomplishments of your career as a designer is that you've made this vast and also somewhat opaque niche of games much more approachable and welcoming to people like me. Yeah, I I say this um, quite often when people talk about sort of the the accessibility, if you will, of Undaunted or the Undaunted series. the best compliment I get, and this is, I'm not exaggerating, is when a, like a war gamer, like what you would call a, like a traditional war gamer or whatever, um, thanks me for working on Undaunted with, you know, the, the, the other folks that I've worked on it with um, and giving them a game they can play with their non-war gaming, gaming partners, <laughs> with their spouse, with their kids, right? I mean, I see all the time people send me pictures of them playing with their 11-year-old, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I get to share my hobby with, you know, my kid for the first time. And it's like, well, that it doesn't, it literally doesn't get any better than that. So, yeah, it's, it's a good feeling. It's cool. Yeah, I imagine that it's going to sell like gangbusters. You got no worries. People are already lining up thinking about the next Undaunted game, which you've already announced. Like, it's it's in the works, so you just have, like, a machine running. But this isn't the entirety of your career. We'll get to Undaunted, and I have some specific questions as a, a relative newbie to the Undaunted franchise. But... Let's kind of back it up a little bit and talk about your your humble beginnings as a game designer. Uh, in my research, it's my understanding that you were starting to get into games in the States, but then you did some sort of maybe work transition or maybe it was for a school scholarship or whatever. You went overseas and you started designing there. Tell me a little bit about your origin story. Yeah, so so that's right. So I, I really didn't, I grew up playing role-playing games, not board games, really. I mean, I played a few things here and there, but mostly RPGs. 
Um, and like you said, about the time I started playing board games in general and started dabbling with design was about the time I moved from the U.S. to the U.K. Uh, and I did. I moved there for my day job. So I moved. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what, what, what field do you work in? I work for the Department of Defense as oh. an intelligence. Okay, we're we're both government employees. Yours sounds a lot more intense than mine, but yeah, there we go. <laughs> Almost certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it sounds way cooler. We, we I'm sure we both sit behind computers all. Day, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I moved to the UK to the Cambridge area in 2014, and that's when I I met a a design and playtest group there in Cambridge, and really that's what opened the the door to me, you know, for design. Right, because there were established prolific designers like Brett Gilbert and Matthew Dunstan there who built that group up and they were super welcoming and, and served as mentors and guides to all of us. And so um, Trevor, my main design partner, we were both part of that same group. So we have a Canadian American who threatened their living in England designing games together. So um but yeah, that's really how it, it sort of springboarded, right? I went from a guy who over span of like six months didn't have a clue how to pitch to pitch a game to going to, to spiel and being able to pitch and start working on designs and stuff was there any sort of rival organization in oxford that the cambridge people were <laughs> like oh we got to design better games than those stuffy necks uh hmm I don't know. <laughs> Not that I've ever heard of. Maybe okay. We well, of. I, I just read Babel, so it's fresh on my mind. Um, no. Okay. Um, so uh, I was going to say there's a uh, Thirsty Meeple, which is an, am an amazing uh, board game store there in, in Oxford. That's what they're known. They've, they've got the store. We've got the design. There you go. Of course. Of course. <laughs> there's always a relationship. Find, find some sort of common ground there. Now, you started this in 2014. 2016, you come out with a co-design with Queen Games, Armageddon. Like, what was that like to start pitching games? And what was a, a rapid amount of time and have one actually picked up by an established company? I mean, this company has come out with all sorts of games that have been, you know, like absolute, uh, what do they call it, uh, evergreen titles in the industry. I mean... I've, I'm looking at Kingdom Builder on my shelf across the room right now. Yeah, so it's an interesting. Uh, I worked on Armageddon with uh, with another guy from Cambridge, uh, Chris Marlin. He and I have done a couple of games for Armageddon in, in a game called Europe Divide. And um, there's a lot of interesting sort of le negative lessons learned, or, or you know, <laughs> stories about Armageddon, and, and I'll get to get to that in a second. But uh, so really, what happened is Chris, you know, we met up in Cambridge as part of this large group and he had some ideas for a game and so we had been play testing each other's stuff and all that and so he invited me to, to work on it with him so all you know giving credit where it's due the sort of origin of armageddon was was chris's idea and i came all along and, and helped help him work on that um but this is the this sort of almost almost negative lesson learned i wanted to, 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 to tell folks who, who are listening like oh i'll design a game and i'll get it you know published in a couple of years we pitched armageddon to queen at spiel 2015 and it was published at spiel 2016 which is wow. it is that's un, that's unheard of and the other thing that's super crazy is uh they signed it at the pitch session which what? is like super unheard of yeah. right so like don't expect any of that because it's never happened again to me ever so um you know it's just it was very strange for your first and it was of course it wasn't the first game i was working on right i had games that i've been working on for years that were published afterwards 
Um, and that's just the, you know, the, the vagaries of, of that uh, timeline. Time but, uh, but yeah, it was a cool experience. And Chris is another awesome uh, guy, great to work with. He's just, he's just a, a, a fountain of knowledge, and especially when it comes to the Euro game world, because everything's, it was a, a really tr- good treat to meet him and get to work with him on Armageddon. When you look back at your, your early career as a designer, do you think of mistakes that you made either in designing the games, such as Armageddon, like things that you were like, oh man, this would have been a, a better game had I done X, Y, or Z, or in how you presented those games, like those pitch meetings. Obviously it went well, but if you gave that same pitch in 2022 to another publisher or even Queen Games, do you think that that same pitch would work? You know, surely you've evolved as a, as a designer and a showcase or a salesman for your games. Yeah. Um, I mean, sure. For sure. You always on the, on the game design part itself, for sure. You always look back and you say, I'd love to change this, fix this or whatever. And then, and it's hard to know, you know, let's say something like undaunted. If I was to design undaunted Normandy now, I would have changed things, but well, you have changed things subsequently, well, I have changed, most I have notably changed the control, right? You know, like control <laughs> right. of an area. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's hard to know because Trevor and I joke about the, the sort of spiky bits of Undaunted, meaning the, the, the things that are least elegant about it um, are probably the things that we would shave off now. But it's hard to know whether some of those little spiky bits, right, those, those crony rules or whatever, are not some of the sort of intangibles that some people like, even if they don't know they like them. And right. so you have to be careful about saying, oh, I would definitely change these things. There's there's a lot of lessons I've learned. Now, on the conveyance of the pitch, now that's even more complicated because I'll tell you, uh, I mean, I pitched, like Undaunted is objectively a smart, you know, commercially successful game. Mm-hmm. So we, we can just say that independent of anything else. Um, I mean, there were publishers I pitched it to that didn't sign it. Um, the pitch was the same. Um, there was a publisher that actually had signed it and just didn't publish. Oh, so well, I mean, jokes on them. Yeah, so it, it, I, I don't. It would be very difficult to look back and say, "Oh, I wish I had pitched it or whatever," because you just don't know what the publisher is looking for. You know, it, all of those sorts of uncertain. So I, I try not to have any of those types of regrets. Or, now, I will say this. Almost no game designer does it full time. If it was my full time job, there would be pressure to actually be successful, like commercially successful. And then it would be much more stressful, not, not a hobby. Life would be very different. Well, when you were getting to War Chest or Undaunted, for example, well, no, let's back up. Because if we're talking about you designing with Trevor, let's actually talk yeah. about you starting to design with Trevor. So you're in the same group at Cambridge. And did you initially get along with Trevor? Was there some sort of synergy in how you were approaching games? Like, what was it that kind of set up this dynamic duo from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I think that, I mean, like every relationship, you know, design design partnerships, just like any other friendship, relationship, whatever, um, you get to, to learn and know each other, right? And so it's funny because Trevor says quite often, because I, you know, Undaunted was, most the core system of Dundaka was mostly done when we started working. You know, I, I had a game that was probably 75%. Now, uh, none of the scenarios and stuff, like the core rules. Um, I I say, and I genuinely mean this, like I brought him a game and we worked together, made it a good game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's true. Um, 
but he always jokes and said, you know, he would have if, if we if we were here, if he was as comfortable with me now as he was when we first met, he would have pushed back on some of the things that, that you know were there. And and so now we I mean we meet, you know, he still lives in the UK, I'm in the US, but we meet at least three times a week for about three or four hours. So we spend about twelve hours together a week. Um so we there is no secrets, there's no pulling punches or anything now, right? So but it took us six years to get there. Um so those that early you know time we, we definitely got along at, at the initial playtest meetings, but it was probably about um, I don't know probably about six months of like meeting and just kind of playtesting each other's stuff and getting to know each other before we really started working closely together and becoming more comfortable. And which came first, Undaunted or War Chess as a design? So so Undaunted came first, and mm-hmm. so the way this worked is um, Undaunted had been sort of conceptualized right as I was moving to the UK, like literally uh, August 2014, something like that. And we worked on it together for for a while. Uh, And then it was in this weird limbo state of, like I said, signed with another publisher. And so we were just kind of waiting around on it. And so Trevor had the idea of what if we took Undaunted and we just distilled it down to its absolute minimalistic core and got rid of like random combat, you know, this this house. And miss this place really fun. That's what turned into War Chest. You know, I I had no conception of the two as like a, I guess uh you know coming from the same lineage. Like of course I you know recognize that they're from the same designers, but to to think of them as like from the same genesis, I guess you know like that they're the same system distilled into one to another. A lot of that is presentation, of course. You know, AEG yep. has a very different look to the game than what you see when you have uh, Undaunted on the table. But now that you mention it, yeah, I can kind of see that being distilled down. So when you were creating this game, you know, like. This is in the wake of the deck building boom, and in some ways, the deck building decline. Dominion came out, and then there was a billion and one deck building knockoffs. Some were great, some were terrible, some and most were somewhere in between. But then there was this rise of deck building as a as an engine, as a functional mechanism for another type of game. And this is one of those games that made a huge impression by using it as, like, we're a war game that's driven by deck building. Did you have any inclination early on of just, like, how popular and seminal this might end up being? No, no, for sure I didn't. I've I've said before, um, Undaunted could be what it is now, which is a game that is a crossover game. It's Mm -hmm. a, you know, it can appeal to, to... Gamers that are, you know, sort of new gamers and Euro gamers and war gamers, etc. That's what it's become. Um, it could have, it could have absolutely been a game for nobody, right? It could have fell, fallen in between the cracks the other way, and and it's like, oh, this isn't a war game. I'm not interested. Or this is, oh, this is not a Euro game. Too, you know, dice rolling for combat. I'm not doing this. So, um, it it kind of in a, in a lot of ways, and I think I think the because I think it it could have easily fallen into that trap, and I think what made it not is the way Osprey presented the game, right? They, they have, you know, what I think is gorgeous art. There's a personal touch to it. Mm-hmm. The way it was, you know, produced as a product, I think is what made the difference. But, um, but yeah, I think absolutely there was a chance that, that it could have been a game for nobody. And I certainly didn't think it would be as successful, you know, as it is. 
can you I, I don't want to spend all of my time just talking about the origins of undaunted and now war chess as well but like can you think of specific design hurdles that either of you were going through in designing or developing this game that had breakthroughs you know like those aha moments where the the magic of the game started to come together Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's difficult for me because I don't have I have a horrible memory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're there's just some, going to rely some... <laughs> on apocryphal information then. Yeah, I you know I I can remember some of the areas that we struggled with, like um, for example, for people who don't know, apologies, but I'll talk about some specifics in the game. So there's a, a card, the machine gunner, who who has a suppression effect, mm -hmm. and all it really does. Is it's a, it's a tempo control. It's like a high probability tempo control. Um, the way the game resolves it now is extremely elegant. You just make a roll and you flip a token over, and the next time you play a card, you flip it back. Cool. At the beginning, when I when I brought the game to, to Trevor, we started working on it together. There was this whole convoluted extra layer of stuff that had to happen with the machine gunners, right? And and thankfully, he said, "This is ludicrous. We're taking this all out, and we're going to find a, a more elegant solution." Um, I think that the the thing that I think this is true. I think the thing that was always kind of there from the start, and so this wasn't a challenge, but it was an extremely fortuitous decision that I that just happened this way. Was the initiative system? Like people all always comment on how they love the initiative system. Right, right. Totally. Um, I think it was. I think it was there. I think that that we realized sort of subconsciously during the design process how important it was and we really took advantage of it, right? We played into it. Um, but yeah, I think I think that, I'm not sure if there was necessarily challenges, but but absolutely, um, I'll just go back to what I said earlier. There was a lot of spiky bits that if it was had just been my game by myself, you know, it wouldn't have been nearly as elegant as it is. Well, sure. I, I actually wonder about that a bit. Because there is something about modern tabletop gaming and the, the environment that we're publishing games in that fetishizes elegance, right? You know, like everything has to be honed down into like this perfect level of elegance where everything's smooth, everything's approachable. And you do kind of shave off some of those edges that give a game character. And I think Undaunted is a good example of something that balances that. And part of what brings its character is that it is so contradictory to the expectation for the genre that it, it squarely represents. So I, I don't think that there's too much worry about it kind of losing its identity. No one has really done what it's done before it, um, except for obvious comparisons to something like Memoir 44, which is a completely different game, but at least somewhat achieved the same kind of balance that Undaunted is now heralding. But I, I wonder if uh, the, the environment that we have now uh, in games is sustainable, uh, because when you uh, fetishize that elegance, it does homogenize games a little bit. I mean, that, that's hyperbole to a degree. Uh, but uh, the, those jagged bits, uh, as you're describing it, um, those are some of the best bits of the most iconic games that have ever come out. Can you imagine Agricola or Ticket to Ride or, you know, like any number of games uh, if they had been uh, totally and pristinely honed into what a, a modern game design would expect out of them? Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. 
So you have designed a lot of games in partnership and not just with Trevor. Like you have many co-designs with many different designers at this point, but you also have sustained this career of designing games independently. Do you have any thoughts as to like what what types of games you like to design with other designers? Is there uh, a process that you go through where you start with a design and then you figure out, well, this is someone else's wheelhouse? Like, what makes you split in one direction or another? I used to say um, a few years ago, I would have said that when I'm working on like more traditional or more hardcore war game or historical war game, whatever you would want to call it, um, oftentimes those for me are like solo specific right mm -hmm. designs um i would say that i would design those by myself mm -hmm. as a solitaire designer and then the other things that were meant for like a broader demographic i would design i would co-design uh that's actually even that's changed in more recent years because if you look at some of the more recent solitaire war games that i've designed i i would call those not co-designer i would call those co-creators because what i've gotten um really interested in doing is partnering with like a historical specialist on the game right so i'll give you a couple of examples so um nicholas Sagini, who nicola Sagini, i uh, worked on a game called stop and see uh, michael cockman uh, soldiers and postman's uniforms etc i led the game design parts of those but they, those guys led the historical research and they are also gamers and so um we we sort of each had our own specialty and so they're listed as, as designers because there's not a better way to necessarily or more accurate way to credit them on Board Game Geek. But what I've basically come to learn is for myself, I just really um, uh, appreciate the, all the positives that come with the co-creative process. And there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of obvious stuff. They bring a lot of specialties to that I don't have or, or you know, research or knowledge or whatever that uh, co-designers bring a bunch of you know, they're making up for shortcomings that I have or whatever. Um, but there's a lot of intangibles too. And I'll just be totally honest about this. Like if I'm co-designing with somebody, it helps hold me accountable. Oh yeah. Right. So yeah. I know that, Oh, we have a meeting on Thursday. I better be bringing what I'm supposed to be bringing to the meeting on Thursday. Right. And so I know myself, I know my shortcomings, I know my weaknesses. And so if I am collaborating with somebody, it's going to help, uh, help me out. In the long run. Speaking of solo design, you have also designed a lot of solo capable games. Uh, a lot of those are the crunchier war games that you were talking about that you've done independent design on. You've done co-design on some solo capable games. Uh, war Chest and Undaunted are not solo capable, at least out the gate, and then came through expansions later on. But I noticed that Stalingrad does not have solo in the box. So like, is this an Osprey? thing is this you guys um kind of liking making a definitive decision about uh solo ability of uh of undaunted i know that it was designed by uh other designers right david turchy uh yeah that's right yep yeah david digby and david turchy worked on on the solo for undaunted and and so one thing that i'll i'll say is for me when i'm if it's going if the game is going to be a solitaire game uh, I'll design it that way from the start. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to be a multiplayer game, I'll design it that way. And I don't, I don't really make solitaire systems for my multiplayer games. Uh, it's just a very different approach. And it's not something I'm necessarily, I think is a strength of mine. And so 
that's just not something I've done. I haven't made a solo system for a multiplayer game. Um, so um, Undaunted, we did not know. So so Osprey runs, you, you mentioned this in passing earlier. I, I kind of chuckled inwardly when you said a, a, fi- a final machine as far as the Undaunted engine, right? Like what's going on in the right, future. Right. And that's because Osprey runs a final machine. So we actually had designed Undaunted Normandy had not yet been released and North Africa had already been designed and completed. Um, we had already conceptualized what might be coming in reinforcements for Normandy. So we did not have the luxury of, of, of actually seeing the game released to the public and knowing what people wanted. And so we did not know the appetite was going to be there because this is 2016, 17, right? Eight going into 18. We didn't know there was going to be such a huge appetite for the solo part of Undaunted. And so um, when we saw that, it was like, okay, we get it. Everybody wants solo. So uh, David Turkstein, David Digby worked on it and created it. And, they, and the solo for it is, I can say this, but I didn't make it. So it's not, not about me. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows you to, it's, this is ludicrous. It allows you to play like every scenario in Normandy and North Africa and in reinforcements from both sides. So it's like 60 some scenarios. It's just insanity. But they had the luxury of like being able to go back and look at those scenarios. And those scenarios, when you're playing Undaunted, the scenario defines everything. It defines what you're going to start with, what's available to you, what the scenario is going to be like. Stalingrad is not like that, right? So Stalingrad is organic. Um, you, that ever, well, the only scenario that's scripted about what people are going to have is the first scenario. From that point on, who you have available to you, uh, what the world, like literally the, the topography is changing and the game state knows who's won or lost and the implications of that, but it, the game state has no clue who's actually in the fight. And so what that means is um, the way that they designed the solo system for the other games could not be duplicated for some. So they would have had to change it and it would have to be a much more generalized solitaire system. So I think and it would just been, I mean, you'd have to design a solitaire system for 35 scenarios with every possible permutation. So, and so what you're just saying is we have to wait for Stalingrad reinforcements, right? <laughs> I think that, I think that if there, and somebody will make, there will be, a, if nothing else, there will be a fan community. You know, That's what I always say be, in reviews. Yeah, like if I yeah. see a game where I'm like, this really seems like it should be a solo capable game, but there's no solo in it, but you can count on the BGG forums to come up with a solo version. Yeah, Even and the Michael, most bananas, I mean, uh, like uh, like game that has the most reliance on player interaction, people will figure out a way to solo yeah. that game. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, even um, there were a, a lot of fan made undaunted ones before the official one came out. And, and Michael Kelly um, from One Stop Co op Shop had a good one. And some, so somebody's gonna, they'll, if nothing else, somebody will make one, and it'll be sort of a generic thing, right? That can be applied broadly to scenarios. And it won't be. It won't be perfect, and it will rely on players to make a lot of, of interpretations, which is what David Digby and David Turtsy's didn't require, right? Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of why we landed where we did. So then you and Trevor come out with Resist. You're like, you know what? Let's uh, move away from this whole multiplayer thing. Let's make a solo dedicated game. And... <laughs> Like, uh, what, what was the impetus here? Like, was yeah. this your answer to uh, War Chest and Undaunted of being multiplayer games? Like, how did this come about? So, so it, well, and, uh, it's, it's us in addition to Roger Tankers. And so 
Um, he's another co-design partner on this. And Roger and I had worked previously on Sniper Elite. Um, and he is actually a co-worker for my, my day job life. Oh, okay. Uh, you brought one also, of them in, a convert. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and he actually had lived in the UK, even though he's an American, he had lived in the UK at the same time as I did. So, um, so the three of us worked on this. And the origin story of it is the publisher, Salt and Pepper. They are a Spanish publisher uh, historically involved with localizations, right? Spanish localizations. Um, the main person there is also a historical gamer, and he had reviewed some of my war games. And he wanted, he reached out to me and said, Hey, I, I want to start publishing not just, you know, localizations. I want us to do some original games. I want you to design something for me, but you can do whatever you want. Okay, just design a game for me. And so I was like, Well, that sounds awesome. But for like a year or two, I had just stuff constantly on contract. And so I, I didn't have time. And he probably thought I was blowing him off. I was like, No, I really want to work with you, but I just don't have time. Well, it just happened that, like, there was a two-month period where all the stars aligned and I was free. And I reached out to Roger and Trevor and said, hey, you know, um, Salt and Pepper wants me to do a game for them. I've got a couple of different ideas. What do you guys think about you know, these two? And I threw out a couple of thematic ideas and sort of a pitch of what the, the core gameplay would be like. And I expected maybe neither one of them would be interested. One of them might be interested, but they both were. And so we have the, the irony of a solitaire game being designed by three guys. It's not lost on anybody, I'm sure. But, um, but yeah, so that, you know, they just said, hey, you can do whatever you want. But the sky's the limit. And, and I, you know, they did not apply this constraint to me. But when I looked at their catalog of stuff that they had done a lot of localizations for, it was stuff for like Button Shy or Watergate or something. So it was like small footprint games. Uh, it's sort of small component count and mostly cards. And so I said, okay. You know, let's try to do something. Let's keep the component count down. Let's keep it to cards. You know, what what can we do with that? And so, yeah, that's and, and it gave me a chance to to explore something a historical bit of uh, you know a, a bit of history that I wasn't familiar with. Spanish Maquis. Like if if you say Maquis to people, they'll probably think Star Trek: Deep Space Nine if they're a nerd. Uh, <laughs> um, a good nerd. They might know the they might know the French Maquis, but like nobody knows it. So it's a super, you know, unknown thing. They could think of Voyager. I mean, that's okay. Yeah, that's true. That's like that's next level. Though. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> I my I watched through all the DS Nine with my wife, and then I was like, "Hey, I watched Voyager when it was live, so you can watch all that with me." And she was like, "This was not an equal trade." <laughs> I promise, season four it gets better. <laughs> Um, to all to any to anybody that's watching right now, if you're if you're a Deep Space Nine nerd and you haven't already watched the Lower Decks episode, it's a homage to Deep Space Nine. You should, no offense, you should just turn this off now and go watch. It. Absolutely, Lower Decks is incredible. <laughs> as as a general Star Trek fan, uh, who you know like that, that's just part of the zeitgeist and upbringing that I had, um, and. I think everyone who has wanted more Star Trek can completely agree that Lower Decks has, has been the absolute best. Uh, it, it's just incredible. Yeah. So historical games. We are living in a very sensitive time, and this by no means is me trying to be like, oh, the woke crowd is trying to shut things down or anything. But I do think about how the the conversation around what's appropriate to depict in games uh is evolving uh that we're trying to be more welcoming and sensitive as a community which i think for the most part is a very good thing but 
sometimes that can feel at odds with the authenticity of the things that we're trying to present as well. There is a specific interest to having things as historically accurate as possible in a lot of war games, historical games, and that does mean that you might have a player faction that is the Nazis. You're going to sit down and one of you is going to be the Nazis or, you know, some other fascist group, or there may be some other atrocities that are associated with this. And as you dig into the cultures of the past, there are problematic elements with the good guys. There's problematic elements with oh so many things. How has this affected your your work as a historical game designer, if at all? Yeah, oh, that's a that's a, that's a long conversation. Um, it's so every, that's okay. I booked this for the next three hours. <laughs> every um, so every designer is different. This is obviously I'm only speaking for myself. So every thing that I look at is a matter of like. Am I comfortable doing this person? Mm -hmm. So, for example, I don't really do anything modern. Like from a, like, let's talk. We're right now. I'm talking primarily historical games through a war game, like a right. conflict game. So, so modern day, um, and that has to do with I'm. I work for the Department of Defense now. Post prior Air Force deployed to Iraq multiple times. I've been there. I don't want anything to do with it. I want right. to play games about it. I don't want to design games about it. I don't really design games. The, the closest I've done is, I mentioned in passing earlier, a game called Europe Divided, which is a post-Cold War game that I designed after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. People don't talk about a whole lot um, before the current invasion. But, uh, like, I guess I probably, maybe I was living in Pollyanna, I didn't realize how bad it was going to be. So it was a little bit, a lot of that was actually kind of future-looking. Um so, but most of the stuff I design, the historical war game stuff I design is uh, what we call skirmish level, right? So it's like very person. Like mm -hmm. each, counter is a, each counter is a person and most of the historical games I design are about real people. Um, I don't feel comfortable designing those games about people that are still alive. Yeah, totally. For example, right? So every person's different, right? Um, that, that's my comfort level. Usually I'm okay with depicting and and both sides most conflicts are all shades of gray there are some conflicts where the shades are darker and lighter like world war ii's an example where the good guys were pretty a pretty light shade of gray and the bad guys were a really really dark shade of gray right? absolutely black. absolutely um some some other conflicts aren't aren't as aren't as black and white. um but even in those right so like in undaunted the German, the, the the U.S. side represents a very specific unit. The, the the German side winds up representing different units throughout. And so sometimes they're a Wehrmacht unit, sometimes they're RSS, or they are actually genuinely Nazis. Um, that level of representation, I'm okay with, both in terms of playing and, and representing in a game. Um, sometimes, and so for an example, right? Because it's best to just give you specifics. Uh, I, one of the games I've designed is called Soldiers and Postmen's Uniforms. It's from a same system of, of games as other games. Like there's other games in that same series. Um, those are all solitaire games where you're playing the defender against an aggressor, right? So you're typically taking on just the role of the of the good guy, if you will, in this in that sense. Um, but I always create like a variant. It's a two player variant. It's primarily to let you run the game if you're teaching somebody. 
right? Like, it's not, if you're playing like Castle Litter or Pavlov's House or something and you're playing the Germans, you're just kind of teaching the other player how to play it because your side's really not better. Just there as a barrier. I didn't allow players to do that in soldiers and postmen's uniforms because it's Germans and like their SS and SA Germans and um, Danzig City Police who end up setting the building on fire and burning people alive. And I was like, I'm not making a game where you can do that, right? So it, it every game is different, right? It's, it's based on the the what's the designers comfortable with and, and the position they want to allow the players to be put in and, and that sort of thing. But um. But yeah, I think you just kind of have to, to decide for yourself, you know, am I doing this? And and other people disagree with me about this, right? They they look at design as more of a simulationist model, right? Like I'm just I'm just giving the players a model of history. It's theirs to explore. That's not I'm not really interested in doing that, right? For me, it's more of an exploration of like trying to evoke emotions and provide a feeling of something that was going on, right? Rather than just a, a, a sort of simulation of it. Um, and so I'm not interested in putting people in certain positions. Well, let's talk about the hotness. Let's bring it back to an easier conversation here. Instead of the, <laughs> sure, the hot sure. seat, we'll go back to the hotness. This is Stalingrad. This is so exciting. It is a huge box that people can get their hands on. It is a much more, uh, I, I guess, uh, ambitious version of Undaunted, and it, uh, you know, is taking place in Russia. You have these dynamic elements with the board, with the loadouts that you have as far as uh, the units. Like, when you started the design work on Stalingrad, like, how many of these elements were you planning on from the get-go? Like, was this a, a creative design and pursuit that you wanted to expand this whole thing or did it kind of crop up organically as you were just like well what can we do that's new and you you just had ideas crop up and then work on them from there yeah so it's funny i mentioned a couple of times you know that uh osprey like we just to pull the curtain back a little bit trevor and i are done with the next two undaunted right so we're literally like I think usually about two or three years ahead of time. Um, so Osprey runs a final. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. So we, we have battle of Britain, battle of Britain. So we've worked. So we we've working, we're working on what's after battle of Britain. Okay. Right. So, and, so, and, and um, we're not getting any details here, right? No, we're not getting no, any scoops. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. No, oh my okay. So I, I, I won't rake you over the coals for that. Okay. <laughs> Just knowing that there is another thing after battle of Britain. <laughs> Battle of Britain looks like a, at least from the box art, it seems to be a little bit slimmer of a package, maybe more in line with Undaunted yeah. Normandy and uh, with uh, North Africa. Right. Is this other one maybe more ambitious? Can we? Can... <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. No okay. way, man. Back, no back, way, to, no back way. to Stalingrad. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so what's, but what's Wink to me twice is... if I. Uh, no. <laughs> I need a distress word. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you work for Department so, of Defense. You've been through the whole rigmarole. Okay. So, um, so the actual first time ever anybody spoke any word about what would eventually become Undaunted was like within a couple of months of Normandy having been released, right? So we're talking way back, literally five years ago, right? Um, 
Trevor and I were emailing back and forth and we were talking about, because remember North Africa at this point has basically been designed. And we said, well, what would, what would the next Andante be like? And we talked about, well, it could be set in the Eastern front. It could be in Stalingrad and Stalingrad makes a lot of sense to have some persistent effects. Right. So that's, that was the first, you know, we ever talked about it. We started seriously talking to Osprey about it within about a year of that. And we did, we, we settled on, on Stalingrad at that point, but Osprey was the ones who said we want it to be legacy. And when, when I say legacy, I mean like no kidding, destructive. That's what they wanted. That's what they asked us to design. And Trevor and I were always a bit like, ugh, this seems not right. It's that, you know, we're, we're a little bit skittish about, about Legacy. But the point that Osprey was trying to make was they wanted it to no feeling, you know, no kidding, feel weighty. Like when, I, when a person dies, they're dead. They're not coming back ever. And so um, we were like, okay, that, you know, we were a little bit hesitant to do this. We're a lot hesitant to do this, but we're <laughs> going to do it. So, so we met. We met with them at Spiel. I think it was Spiel 2019 or 2020. I can't remember which one. So it was myself, Trevor, um, Philip, and Anthony, who are guys with Osprey. And we basically over dinner that that night. We um, we listed what does Undaunted Stalingrad have to have, right? And it wasn't a whole bunch of in-depth stuff. It was just a list of things it had to have. And some of it was just like it has to still feel like it's We can't, we can't, it has to be something that's familiar, right? Um, but then we started listing all the things it was going to have. And I, and I can't, I have to be a little bit careful because people still haven't played it yet. So I don't want to spoil stuff because there's a lot of, a lot of things that are going to pop up. But people are going to see some stuff that they've seen a little bit before in North Africa and reinforcements, maybe some twists to it. They're going to see some brand new stuff they've never seen before. But a lot of that stuff came out of that meeting you know, that was like the very first sort of conceptualization meeting, what it's going to be. So we, so when Trevor and I started the, no kidding, the first ever you know, design work on it, we already knew that it was going to be a legacy game, that it was going to be, and it was going to have all these sort of elements, these persistent elements. So things like soldiers were going to die, they were going to be able to get promoted, uh, the world was going to change around them, it was going to have this insane branching narrative that I can't, I lost years of my life mentally um coming up with uh it, all of that was there from the start right and so it was just a matter of just it was a matter of of trying to go back and say okay how do we make this all and there were two things that in in retrospect were probably the most challenging one i already mentioned that the branching narrative and all the implications of that. Like, so that every scenario has it has to have an impact um some more more significant than others but everyone has to have an impact create a separate branch. How do we make it feel like a full campaign? Make it feel like you've been fighting over a few streets of land for two months, um, but be meaningful um, and provide a different experience every single time you play it. So that was one. And keeping, and then, you know, obviously it has to come together at the end. Uh, and then the other thing that this might sound silly is like, how do we make injuries work or death work, right? And, and what I mean by that is Undaunted doesn't function unless you have scouts and like, you can't right, play right, the right. game unless you can scout and control. So we couldn't lose those. You can't just let those people die, right? So the magic solution we came up with is that if you lose your riflemen, your scouts, or your machine gunners, they, those people do die. They go away. You'll never get them again. They're replaced by reinforcements, these reservists who 
if, if anybody's ever played Undaunted before, you know that every single person is an individual. They have their own art, they have their own name, they're a person. Um, that person dies, they're replaced by a nameless reservist, right? And so um, thematically what's happening is, well, you're getting these waves of recruits and it's the, the sort of cliche in the war movies, like don't don't bother you know, learning right, right. this guy's name because he's not going to live long. Um, he's a red mechanically, shirt. they're just a worse... He's a red shirt. Exactly, it's exactly right. Um, mechanically, they are weaker, right? So they're still a rifleman, so they can still function. The game still can, you know, propel forward, but they're a weaker version. And so there's both a thematic and a mechanical reason you don't want to keep that. Um, but in, and then if it's not one of those core, if it's not a rifleman, a machine gunner, or a scout, if they die, they're dead. You, if you, you know, if you've got your team of engineers and there's three of them to start with, and one of them dies, you know that you're never getting that person. Um, and so that was the solution we finally came up with, and, and I'm really happy with where we landed, but wow, that took a long time to, to get there. Board games are your creative output, one of your creative outputs or your primary creative output. You don't rely on it as your source of income, so you know, really this is you putting your outside effort from your primary job into bringing something into the world to be able to say something, to be able to facilitate something for other people. And it's clear you draw a lot of inspiration from other games out there, from your history. We've talked about uh, games that might have made an impact on you, and you've talked in other sources about games that have made an impact on you. But I'm wondering if there are non-board game creative things that have made an impact on you that that inspire your design work you know like it, whether it's music or or books or or things that drive your creativity that you draw on to you know like help you come up with ideas or to to inspire you to reach for something or some sort of tonal quality like what do you draw inspiration from mm, that's a good question i don't I don't know if there's any one thing. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of history podcasts, um, read a lot of books. I think that, and, I'm, and I don't ever, I think this is a true statement. I generally don't try to seek out ideas, right? Like I'm not, oh, I need an idea for a board game, like go read some books or whatever. It's, it's through the course of the day, I'll be reading a book or I'll be whatever, listening to a podcast and something will pop up. And I'm like, oh, that sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'll start doing a little research and what'll happen. This is, this is the sort of the, the creative spark for me. I'll hear something in passing. I'll do a really quick deep dive into it, right? Read all about it, consume it. In the background of all I'm consuming that, it'll be like, how does that get turned into a game? Right. And then I might jot some ideas down, but usually I don't. Usually it's just like, how does that get turned into a game? And it just kind of sits there. And most of the time, that I think about working on like new stuff, like fresh ideas or whatever, is when I'm jogging. I'll be jogging, I'll think about it. Um, if if I keep jogging and I keep having the same thoughts about the same game idea, then I know I have to work on that game. Like Dude, I know it. The, right? the so, Cardboard Herald, uh, this whole thing that I started uh, doing uh, podcast interviews, I actually have a recording from like seven years ago now where I was running. Uh, I'm a couple miles back in the Tongass National Rainforest here in uh, here in Juneau. And I was thinking about this idea of like, well, 
if Mark Marin interviews comedians on WTF, who's doing that for board games? Uh, and that idea just kept on imprinting over the music or other part podcasts that I was listening to. And so I actually stopped and, you know, I had nothing to write on. So I'm out of breath. And I'm right, uh, just, you know, talking into the phone being like, WTF, except for board games. It's, and then you could do review blog in order to help grow it and understand more about board games. And that was like the entire genesis of this thing. <laughs> That's awesome. I hope you still have that voice memo. I, I think I do. I think for, uh, you know, I I don't do as many interviews. Uh, I I want to yeah. do more. Um, but uh, in the beginning, uh, it just kind of happened, and I got to like a hundred episodes. I'd interviewed uh, Reiner Knizia and Bruno Catala and all these, you know, people. Francesco Nepotello, like people that I was like, oh my god, these are like interviewing. I don't know, uh, Ringo Starr or something. Well, I could have picked any other Beatle, but, you know, um, whatever. You know, like the, it was like you, uh, you know, like this is meeting someone who's very interesting and, and fantastic. And I had no idea that I was going to be able to pull off some of this. And I think for like the hundredth episode, uh, I put that recording into, you know, just the, the, the audio podcast that it was at the time. I didn't even have a video channel at that point, but um yeah uh anyway i kind of derailed it so running you're running yeah. you come up with yeah. ideas and then it, you allow well, that, that to marinate a little bit yeah that's that's pretty much it i mean if i if i can't get the idea out of my head at that point that i know i have to make a game and if i and if i don't come back to it if i, if I read about it i'm like oh that's really interesting i wonder what a game would be like if i don't have to make it if it doesn't just stay in my mind right then i know okay i don't need to work and sometimes it takes a long time to circle back and have the time to work on it. Um, I'm super, super blessed right now because this is a hobby and it's whatever it is, part-time job, hobby thing that it is. Um, I'm, I'm super blessed right now because because of the success of things like War Chess and Undaunted, it means that those stay on contract and I'm, I'm kind of obligated to, to keep working on those and I'm, people you know will commission me for other things. So... That's all great, but it doesn't mean I have a ton of time to come up with necessarily my own new ideas, right? So they they might get put put on the back burner. One of the great things about historical games is that when you sit down to play them, it immerses you in something that you might not actually know all that much about, especially for the outsider like me. And I can read the notes in it, and I can read about the research. You know, a lot of historical game designers are really great about putting notations for the sources that uh, they read to research the subject and uh, kind of following that rabbit trail to go back to the music comparison with Ringo Starr, you know, as a musician myself. One of my favorite things to do is find out who are my favorite bands as favorite bands, you know, the, the people that inspired them, the things that they researched. I'm wondering if you as a designer have ever changed your mind or had your perspective changed or, you know, like had your mind blown from some preconceived notion when you started designing a game and then you actually got into the research to, to make sure that it was historically accurate. Yeah. Uh, so that's happened quite a few times. Um, the most, the most like obvious one of those, I guess, or most significant one of those. Uh, and I've, I've mentioned this before a couple of times, uh, not with you, just in, in, in past conversations, 
is when I was working on Pavel's house. Mm-hmm. So the the origin of that one, you know, I had I worked on the game called Castle Um That design was complete. It was very much this this you know sort of World War II defense of a single point uh, by by some defenders. I, that's a whole separate story that I won't get into. But uh, but after I was done with that, I, I reached out to the community. And I said, Hey, does anybody have some good ideas for a game that can be a follow up? And, and somebody recommended Pavlov's House, and I was like, Oh, I kind of know about Pavlov's House. You know, the Soviets defended this building for a couple of months, right? That's what I knew about it. And when I started researching, I was like, Oh my god, like. Not only am I wrong about this, but pretty much most of the Western world is wrong about this, right? Like we, what we're what we think is that the Soviets, you know, a small group of infantrymen defended this building by themselves for a couple of months, and that's definitely not what happened, right? And the reason we think that is because that's what the Soviets wanted the world to think. There's this huge myth, this huge propaganda that was created around this concept of you know, a few people holding out and few infantrymen holding out defending this apartment building. And instead, there was massive, you know, multi-concerted effort, operational scale effort. It was defending many places, but one of which was Pavel's house. So there was this huge effort that was related to this defense. And so that was an example. And I actually, when I do my historical war games, um, I usually write a companion book that goes with it. Right? And so usually it's about 40 pages of like, some of it's design notes, but most of it's just history for it. And so there's a section in that book for Pablo's house where I talk about debunking the myth of to go into detail about literally everything that was was part of the myth and everything that's reality and there's basically more wrong than right well that is incredible uh because I know almost nothing about Pablo's house other than knowing the name and then looking in your your uh I guess your board game published board game ology uh filmography except for board games your library of board games and then going pavlov's house i know that name where do i know that name okay going back soviets uh it, you know like i i have this interest in uh the soviet union as were many of the people who were born in the 80s uh but you know a lot of it is just layman's knowledge so that's something I'm definitely going to have to research. It's something that I would love to talk to you more about, but it's late. It's late, man. You're on the East Coast. It's late here in Juneau. So I am going to have to do this as a follow-up conversation. For now, what I'm going to say is that everyone out there, if you have any notion of, of historical games as being this impenetrable and opaque uh, uh, niche of board games that you've you've wanted to find your way to the table, but you haven't figured out how to get that foothold. Undaunted is absolutely a fantastic way to do that. And then if you're looking for that meaty experience, it sounds like Undaunted Stalingrad is the the bee's knees. I I, I have zero concerns about that being an absolute hit and thank you for coming on to the show and for all that you've given the world thank you david yeah thanks for having me it's been awesome